Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. And the, the great thing about our podcast is that quite often you get to hear little tidbits that you've not, not heard before. Tid, D, tidbits. <laughs> oh, not, did not I say tidbits. Tit? L- listen, Dad, we've gotten some really great listener questions that have been related to the police. Excellent. So, Love um, I've got a question here from Wes. Yeah. Hi, Paul and John. Love the podcast and the books. And then one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight exclamation marks, which is a very nice endorsement. My pop grandfather was a Victoria police officer for 39 years, QPM recipient. What's QPM, Dad? Well, I would, I would guess that the first letter yeah. stands for Queen. Sure. The M metal? is metal. Yeah. And the P could be for parsley. Oh, sure. The Queen's Parsley Medal. Princely. Yep. Uh, pedantic. Yep. I'm going to keep reading. Yep. Before you hear from our main guest today, I want to play you a really quick grab from a chat I had recently with a man called Professor Stephen Cordner, who's an internationally renowned forensic pathologist. He was instrumental in creating a world-leading forensics facility in Melbourne. He's given evidence at The Hague. He inspected mass graves in Iraq for the World Health Organization and in Kosovo for the Red Cross. He deployed to Liberia in 2014 to provide advice and support regarding dead body management during the Ebola outbreak. And that is really a fraction of his resume, but you get the idea. Anyway, the audio isn't great, and I apologise for that because I wasn't actually meaning to broadcast it, but I think it's so special and pertinent that I really wanted you to hear what Professor Cordner told me when I asked him what made him choose to go into forensics in the first place. We're talking about the early 1970s when it wasn't a very glamorous field to go into and there wasn't much funding. This was his response. There is, I could see my father who was a GP. And everybody agreed he was a great GP. He was really good with his hands, so he could fix fractures. He could do, you know, appendixes and hernias. And the life of a country GP in those days was very practical. And all the sorts of things that occupy emergency departments these days were done by the local GP. And he was on duty 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so it was full-on thing, I could see that he was having a um, very full and productive life. 
but I knew I was no good with my hands and he was very astute clinically. He could react quickly, you know, all of the sort of attributes I think you need and they were not attributes of mine. So I had to find a place that was a bit more suited to my temperament and my skills, which weren't necessarily the sort of practical skills that are needed on the ground. Fifty years later, with a massive career behind him, Professor Cordner doesn't hesitate to put it all down to the fact that he just wasn't as skilful as his father, the country GP. I found that answer fascinating, endearing, certainly unexpected, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I started reading Electric Blue. That's the latest book from comedian Paul Verhoeven about his father, John Verhoeven's days in the New South Wales Police Force. Paul's first book was the huge hit Loose Units, which spawned the podcast and the live shows of the same name. I kept thinking about Professor Cordner and his father as I read the new book. Not only because Electric Blue is about John's years in forensics, but also because along with the wit and charm we've come to expect from the Verhovens, Electric Blue has a very strong thread running through it about unspoken family histories and in particular, father-son dynamics. Paul Verhoeven is another talented man who tends to see himself reflected a little less brightly than his father. Here he is talking about the moment that inspired him to write Electric Blue. I kind of hit that weird bump where I was in my mid-30s and I had this weird like kink in my career and I wasn't 100% sure of what I wanted to be doing with my life. And I just looked across at dad and at his accomplishments and just thought like by his age, he had a house and he had a wife and he had three kids and his careers had been incredible and I was sitting there reviewing video games in my underpants. One of the things I've realized watching him is like, oh, shit, we're basically the same person. Chemically, <laughs> we're the same person. So if we're the same person, if we have the same inclinations and drives, not 100%, but there's a lot of crossover. If we have a lot of the same tools and I have other things at my disposal, you know, I, I had more money growing up because mum and dad worked so hard to kind of put me through stuff they never did, then how come I couldn't do what he did? Like if I had the drive to solve problems because I've always wanted to be Sherlock Holmes. I've always wanted to be a detective. I've been obsessed with detective work and solving problems and righting wrongs and, you know, fighting injustice, all that other stuff. But I, I just couldn't measure up to what dad did. I didn't have what it took. And so Electric Blue became this sort of compare and contrast exercise, you know, putting these two templates of people next to each other and going, look, they're basically the same. How come one of them ended up, as we've established, in his underwear playing video games? And the other one ended up, you know, um, soaring through the air in a Kingswood or kicking down doors or... Well, it depends on how you look at it because I could say one of them ended up writing books and being a comedian and a performer and a good person who's a grown-up and got a great relationship with his family. And the other one ended up brushing the tassels on a rug in the lounge room and driving his wife mental. And that's your dad. Like, gonna, it depends yeah, on how you I look know. at it. And it makes me laugh so much when you open the book with that story. That's so hilarious. He was so, he was so pissed about that. I'm Michelle Laurie and this is the Nitty Gritty Committee, stories about the guts and the glory of life. And this week we speak to Paul and John Verhoeven. 
They're as close as any father and son could be. They enjoy each other's company so much, they do a weekly podcast together, produced by Paul's wife and fellow comedian Tegan Higginbotham. But there is a very dark episode in the Verhoeven's past that echoes still, even though it hadn't been spoken of since Paul was a teenager. So Paul did exactly the kind of thing I've come to expect from a fellow comedian. He wrote his feelings about it into his book, and then he gave the book to his parents to read. I spoke to Paul and John Verhoeven separately for the release of Electric Blue, and I've knitted the two conversations together here with their permission. We'll start with Father John Verhoeven and his reaction to reading Electric Blue. I found reading that book sort of very poignant and uh, I kind of felt that he was saying things to me through the book. It was tough for me. I felt bad. He kind of portrays me and sees me as sort of a, as a superhero. And then he says, but dad, you are basically, he, he wanted to know why I didn't be a superhero and, and go to bat for him. One day during the sessions, Dad told me this story about how uh, he got a call in uniform. Dad goes to this house and there's this little kid who was being bullied and he said, don't worry, I'll go and sort it out. And so the next day, he and his partner Julian rock up at this school and the kid's getting bullied in the schoolyard and Dad calls the bully over and threatens the kid to knock his block off and then it just changed this kid's life. And I was sitting there listening and I was so angry and he couldn't understand why and I didn't tell him really at the time but I wrote it into the book I had a heroic cop dad who actively stopped bullies from bullying strangers but when it came to me he didn't do anything it was just it was a, it was pretty full on the the emotional uh, I haven't had this discussion with Paul because <sighs> uh, I only read the, the book you know less than a week ago um, but it was a very uh, it was a full-on moving experience and I wanted to sort of call him and say, but I haven't actually touched on that particular facet. And it's good that you're talking to me about it because maybe you can be like an intermediary where he will find out some things by listening to you. Well, i tell you my one question that I put to him and I was shocked that he didn't know and he hadn't asked you because he told us that he was terribly bullied for five years and that he wanted to know why you didn't ever step in. And then he found out that you had, that you and his mum had gone to the school. We did. I found out after my parents had read the book and they really liked the book and I think it took them by surprise a fair bit. And they told me something that they didn't tell me until after they read the book and that was that unbeknownst to me at several points, they went to my high school Whoa. and threatened legal action uh, a couple of times, which is a big deal. I said, oh, so why didn't they tell you? Did they not tell you at the time to spare your dignity? Was their thinking, don't tell Paul, we don't want him to be embarrassed or he might try and stop us, but we're just on the quiet going to go and talk to the principal? And I don't know. You haven't asked? No, I, I don't know. I mean, the fact is, look... <sighs> They were quite young. Well, look, the, the story is that um, he was terribly bullied 
Um, and the sad thing is that he won a lot of the academic medals in year 10. And we never, ever like to mention the school, St. Paul's Catholic School, Manly on the Eastern Hill. We never mention it. No. And, that, and do not take that out of this, tape, this recording. It was a very much a sport-driven school. So if you played rugby, uh, rugby league, uh, dare I say it, you were given sort of, a sort of almost a sort of a nobility status. Uh, you were a, a, like a deified member of sort of some royal dynasty and you could do no wrong. And there was Paul, brilliant. He did four-unit English in his HSC. He, was, he won all the medals in year 10. We went to the, uh, the local uh, Catholic church where they've got a bit of a hall, and we, we sat there so proudly. And, and for every subject, Paul was called up, and he basically got no acknowledgement. And his peers, some of the things his peers used to do were so diabolical that if I was connected to a uh, blood pressure monitor during this conversation, you could see the levels rising. I just, bullying is, it's inexcusable. Mm. And what it is, it's, it's going and picking on the most vulnerable. You know, bullies don't pick on people twice their size. No, of and course not. And, 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 and they... And we say to our children, as a parent, it's so painful. And I, I've never lived through that level of bullying yet. But as, as parents, we say to our children things like, if you turn around and stand up to that person, they will never bother you again because that's how bullies operate. We try and turn it into a life lesson, things like that, because firstly, that's how we were raised. And secondly, because we're thinking to ourselves, is, is this a life experience? Should, should I be leaving him or her to sort of find their own way through this? Are they meant to be learning life through this? One time they were like, just can you just try and avoid them or do you want to, do you want to maybe fight back? No, that's not going to work. Okay. Um, do you want to try getting along with them? Just to, and it, Like what do you do? These people are – bullies are amorphous. They are, they are geniuses at adapting and they will change their tactics. Five years is a long time. So you must have had a lot of different phases of what we, we did have do. a lot of phases. We did. But one of the problems is that Paul generally never told us. We didn't get to hear about, it. for example, yeah. we didn't know about his broken nose until he'd left the school. Bullying usually happens away from prying eyes and there's so few actual avenues of recourse. The bullying was um, out of 10 it was right up there with, uh, with the worst. Years, yeah. And he, he, he would be often held down on buses and would not be allowed to get off at home and he'd come home an hour later. Yeah. He'd walked. So I guess, you know, in those days they were probably having so many talks alone at night time and so stressed and upset about what are we going to do, should we do yeah, something? Was, they wouldn't have known. No, you know. and how awful for them. And if you're working, you know, if you're working like three jobs and you're exhausted, before you know it, high school's over and suddenly you just, it's just a blur. And then you realize years later that you may have fucked up. And, but that's, you know, it's like, I'm, look, look at me, I'm fine. Like it's, you're better than you know. fine. I mean, I'm sure everybody listening to this conversation will be thinking, God, every person has something with their parents, a moment in time where they go, you could have done something. Yep. But 100%. At least you've still got a great relationship with your parents, which a lot of people don't over things like that. It's really nice. And I think one of the things that I've realized is that it's very easy to look at the people who could have helped but didn't. And then 
avoid getting angry at the people who actually did the thing. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, what, like the only reason I got mad at my parents is because they were there mm-hmm. and they were listening. The fact is, if the bullies lived next door to me, I would have taken it out on them. I would have, you know, gone and interviewed them for the book. Actually, I wouldn't have, but, no. you know, you, you get what I'm saying. And what about the school, the, you know? I, mean, I did name the school in the, in the book, by the way. I did. I actually said... Um, the school, which I shall not name here, but which is actually called St. Paul's Manly. It's a, it's a boys' school. Up the <laughs> it, like, fuck them, right? Like, it's fuck them. Yeah. The fact is, it's yeah. not libel. It happened. Uh, I think I might still have actual physical scars, so if they want to come at me, come at me. Jesus. Yeah, it was a really intense time. One of the, the guys at this school, one of the bullies, they, they got this welding brush, and they basically took out the whole back of the skin behind Paul's knee, and it was, it was an assault. Mm. And Christine and I, we contacted the school and get ready for this. Now, Paul's a pacifist. If, if, if there was a cockroach in our kitchen in Manly, he would insist that we pick the cockroach up. We had to take it out and put it outside. There was no killing of anything, mm. a real pacifist. And when we went to the school, they tried to apportion blame to oh, Paul. Yeah. And we said, okay, if this isn't dealt with properly, we'll bring the police in. And we had to make a serious threat. And that was dealt with, but we did it in such a way through the wonderful school counsellor where we explained that we, as best as possible, because let's face it, we're not at the school, but yeah. the victim has to continue going to the school. And, and is and, that and why Is that why you chose not to tell Paul? That's the reason. We just thought if this can be dealt with without him knowing, but isn't it sad to think as the years have gone by, he, and when I read it, I just thought, look, you know, it was pretty, pretty heavy, and and I oh, look to think that he had to sort of talk about it in the, almost the third person. It's yeah. pretty, uh, and for that, I'm, you know, I'm s- sorry and sad, but um, you know, but it's been a cathartic experience. The uh, the relationship that I have with Paul is uh, it's palpable. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I think what was nice is when my parents called me um, tearfully, I'll, I'll, I'll hang them out to dry in that respect, after reading the, um, the first draft of Electric Blue, the one thing they said was, thank you for being so f- flattering. Like I really, I really wanted to kind of show them and the world what kind of people they are. Well, I, I almost said what kind of people they were, but I think there's lots of stuff in there about the present day as well. In fact, there is a case in there that took place in the early 90s when mum and dad 
were trying to get rid of some of dad's old scuba gear and they sold this scuba tank to this dodgy guy on a motorcycle who they both agreed looked and acted like a hitman, but it was a big, like it was $5,000 for a used scuba tank, right? One of these old leadline scuba tanks. And so they took the money and at the guy's behest, went and did a drop off in the city, got paid cash and then went and sat in the Marigold, which is a yum cha restaurant in the city near George Street. And they had this big opulent lunch, went back, saw this flower van parked nearby and thought nothing, nothing of it. And then what mum and dad revealed to me over a couple of drinks in, in the book, and you can read this case, is they revealed that actually they had accidentally wandered into a uh, heroin smuggling ring. Uh, <laughs> and so there is a lot of stuff in there that kind of explains what they're like post the police. And I'd like to think that if I kind of sat them down and said, hey, we need more content. Can we maybe start the three of us start a private investigation agency and just see how that goes? You know, what if what if two parents and their son started up a private investigation agency? I mean, oh would God. you hire us? I, I, not only that, I would make a TV show about it, starring Rebecca Gibney as your mum. Yep. God, who would be your dad? Oh, that beautiful man, John Waters. John Waters. Oh, wouldn't he be fabulous as your dad? He'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Stunning. And, then, and who would who, be you? Someone fabulous. Someone in the someone in their late thirties with a moustache the size of um Calcutta. I need a newcomer. I need a, I need a NIDA graduate, some hot newcomer as you, and Tegan as well, hot hot young NIDA newcomers as you or, guys. Or you use green screens and cast Rebecca Gibney as everyone. Happy with that. Yep. Don't, don't forget, Michelle, that when Paul approached me a few years ago, he said, Dad, uh, I've got an idea for a book. And I said to him, Paul, I don't think I've got enough material. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I said I don't think there's enough material. Yeah. So now we're at the end of two books. We've done a, an incredible series of live shows. It's been optioned in Hollywood. I know. That's. I'm seeing that's... John Waters for you. Don't you think? I love John. Is he still alive? Yes, babe. It's didn't fabulous. he? Didn't John Waters used to be on Play School? Yes, and. and he... The mums loved him. Is he sexy? Oh, my God. He's so sexy. Oh, good. Oh, he's okay. stunning. But All then right. Paul did mention Sam Neill to me and I thought, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. What do you think about um, Russell Crowe? Mm, not good enough. Cool. Michelle, you what put it you out there. What do you think about that? I, I'm, I'm quoting you. I'm, I'm happy with that. I love it. I, Rusty's, uh, got... not, Rusty's not refined enough for you. Hmm. Well, I, I thought he was pretty good in Gladiator. You're not a Gladiator, babe. No, but I oh. cried. I cried during that film. I'm serious. I, Christine, I'll tell you, we sit on, on the two-seater and I can have tears streaming out of my eyes, but I'm very self-conscious about crying. My dad passed away a few weeks ago and I didn't cry at the funeral, but I was at a friend's nephew's funeral two years ago and out the front at this big cathedral with a lot of strangers, I broke down. And what I put that down to is not the sadness of that day, I put it down to the build-up of, of just things inside you and, and men definitely don't cry enough. Part of the thing that really helped if I could ever give any advice to kids being bullied, if they're male or if they're female, fuck it. Um, get a moustache. These things are just, they are bully-proof. I mean, I don't care if your kid's 10. Whack a moustache on them because Magnum P.I. never got bullied. Nah, it's pretty 1980s copper too, which I like. It's another... Homage I, have, I have completely changed my style guide, by the way, since this began. <laughs> since the electric blue thing began, I basically ha I only wear Hawaiian shirts and I, I have a moustache now. So, 
I mean, do you think that contributed to your sort of feelings about your dad as well? He's such a macho man. I mean, he doesn't come across as a macho man. This is not how I see Mm. him. But his resume certainly reads as a pretty macho resume. And Mm. then you've been the victim of bullying for five years. That's such a long time. That's horrible. As you say, you have physical scars from it. So it's literal beatings, right? Did you think that contributed or contributes to your feeling of him being this superhero? I'm not sure. I mean, (laughs) I think... And you said earlier, God, when he was my age, he had a house and he had kids. And Do you have those feelings about what it is to be a man in this day and age? Because it's changed a lot. Yeah. The The thing is, Dad never held against me what my version of masculinity is i'm a flamboyant guy like i I, you know i I see i sit in all kinds of weird like subsections and vent of like intersecting (laughs) venn diagram circles like i get that that's fine and mom and dad really really encouraged me to kind of do whatever and just you know follow my inclinations but there is something pretty cool about driving really fast oh by the way i can't drive which doesn't help the inadequacy either so you know at one point yeah at one point during the recording sessions for the podcast dad's like maybe i could uh, teach you to drive and we can live stream it and i'm like yeah i don't think that's entirely legal but (laughs) there are so many you know if you're ticking boxes of like archetypal old school manliness i miss the boxes except for the facial hair one which dad cannot check he cannot grow facial hair But, (laughs) but but it did you know, it did kind of chafe a little bit growing up and kind of seeing all my friends, you know, fall into those categories and then talking to dad and hearing about his adventures and just going, when I was 22, I mean, he was solving crimes for God's sakes. Yeah. One thing I tried to do in Electric Blue was posit the question to dad, of like, what kind of a detective would I have been if I'd actually solved crimes and if I'd been a detective? In the end, I think what he said, which was the nicest compliment he could have paid me, was you're too nice to be a cop. Mm. And I know plenty of nice cops. We like so do you. Like yeah. we know nice cops. But he just he's just like you're just too you're too you're far too nice. And I don't know if that's true or if he was just coming up with an excuse, but having your dad think you're too nice or nice at all is is quite the compliment. Uh, you know, I hadn't told my father that I loved him since I was three, apparently. Apparently what happened was the story goes that one night I didn't kiss my father goodnight and my father took that as, oh, well, like he was really pissed off that the three-year-old didn't and he then took that upon himself to go, okay, well, that's finished all that. And then probably two years ago I thought, because my dad was really getting on, and I thought I don't want my dad to pass away without me having told him that I love him. So I was... You know, I had a few aunts and mum and a couple of people were there, and I and it was and you know what I was? It's one of the most nerve wracking. I was so stressed because what you are worried about is rejection. Of course, imagine. And you know, I went up and I hugged him, and he was he was overcome, um, and it was intense, but it was so good and it's so important. And I, you know, I think as a guy, you really need to just suck it up and. Because if something, you know, my dad used to say, again, when I'd go, uh, if I had an argument with my brother, my dad would always say, John, what happens if you have an argument and you never see them again? About three weeks ago, my grandfather, dad's dad, Hank, passed away. Uh, It was like a long time coming and he and dad never really, you know, they weren't like openly communicative emotionally. And that's fine because it's a generational thing and I'm not impugning his character. But dad and I have such an open, honest dialogue and 
if we're happy to talk to each other, we let each other know. If we're not, we let each other know. And I just don't know whether any of this would have happened had it not been for Loose Units and Electric Blue. I don't know if I'd be where I am emotionally with my parents. And I think, I, I just think I'm very lucky. Well, yes, but you also initiated those things. So, you know, there's yeah. a bit of luck, but there's also the will and the work on your part. Yeah, I'll happily take all the credit. That's very nice of you. Paul is just, look, he's just an amazing guy. And look, every time I talk to Paul, I say to Paul, Paul, we should be recording this. <laughs> so it's kind of weird, isn't it? And I feel as though we can pretty well talk about anything and, you know, but he's, he's, he's a fine, fine man and I'm so proud of him. And, and Tegan is just so wonderful. We, we have embraced her into Jeez. our family. Every single day that passes working with dad, I've started to kind of get more of an idea of what he's like as a person. And I've started to kind of get a more, you know, like a more three-dimensional view of him as a person. And I think just around the time that I started writing Electric Blue, I had a lot more questions than I ever did. I'm going to go and have an Asahi because I fast 20 hours a day. I'm sure you do. No, I do. And I I'm know you do. No, You're great. No, it's not great. It's just I'm I'm insane, mm -hmm. but I but I break my fast with a beer, which is nice. So you're starting the fast or finishing it now? Finishing. Oh, so you don't eat all day? Twenty hours. I have a four hour window. Why? So, well, we can talk about that another time. We, okay, you're right. You're right. That's a big topic. All right, take care, please. Give my love to Christine. I'm going to do one with Christine. Ask her. Oh. Ask Christine if she'll podcast with me, please, and then I'll come back and ask her another day. She is amazing. I know of her. And to, to see things from her perspective, I'm thinking to myself, was I actually there? Oh, God. She's great. All right, I'll, I'll ask her. Do, and then I'll right. come back and ask her too. All the best. Bye. Thank you to Paul and John Verhoeven. And don't forget to get your copy of Electric Blue. It's out now and would make a fantastic Father's Day gift, if you don't mind my saying so. Thank you for downloading this episode of the Nitty Gritty Committee made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 